Well, hello. Um, Chris Shaw, Chairman of Sean Trigger Trust. Um, welcome to All Together Now, our new podcast. And I have with me, to my left... Hello, my name's Steve Head. And to my right... Hi there, James O'Brien. You know, I did that with just my arms outstretched and we're nowhere near each other because of COVID and all the other <laughs> things. Um, yeah, fantastic. So um, this is the Sean Cliff Trust podcast uh, called All Together Now. It is basically just um, us talking about history and heritage as um, we all do and talk about the projects that we're involved in and what we'd like to be involved in and tell the amazing stories that are linked to Sean Cliff, our project uh, the amazing people who work with the trust and support the trust and the amazing people we meet along this great journey, which its sole aim is to try and save Sean Cliff, um, which is a fantastic piece of heritage down on the south coast near Folkestone and Sandgate and the Hythe. Amazing military base. And we'll tell you more about that over the coming weeks. I think it'd be good, Chris, if we just sort of... Um say how we all came to this how we got here do you want to hear the story yeah go on for us again okay. steve you know the story james you might not um uh, well I, I i don't know the story so 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 i think it's it's probably because i'm new to all of this and, and i think we should probably let everybody know that i'm 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 the relative newcomer um to the sean cliff trust only having moved to Folkestone oh, two and a half years ago so you know my my interpretation of what the sean cliff trust is is, is is quite light so indulge me tell me how this how how, how did this come about I, I don't know i don't know where the actual original spark came from um it all started years ago i'm a 95th reenactor um I'm, I'm one of those guys who dresses up with steve um we dress up at weekends and hang around in fields together but we're very we belong to uh, a group that's a 95th rifles regiment of foot so they were riflemen back in the time of Wellington and Napoleon, and they're quite unique, aren't they, Steve? They've, they've, yeah. They had camouflage, green jackets, they had um, black leather work, and they had a rifle, which made them the snipers of the British Army. And as a passionate, dedicated reenactor, and reenactors get so much grief, um, but they're really a bunch of dedicated historians. Um, I wanted to find out where we were born. And the 95th were created during the Napoleonic Wars in 1800. And um, they were the Experimental Corps of Riflemen. That's how, how they started from learning from our uh, loss of America and being shot by Americans with rifles. And uh, they were, were created as this new sort of soldier. And what was unique is they actually got their, their number, the legendary 95, the 95th Rifles, got their number whilst at a place called Shawncliffe. And it was very there where they were born, it's where they learnt their craft under Sir John Moore and Dundas. And these amazing guys, we'll, officers we'll find out about over time. But I wanted to find out where we were born. Sorry, Chris, you've got yeah. a, a story about it because... Obviously, you, 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 when you approached, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, I thought you, when you approached the, the, the military to find out about uh, Shawncliffe, they didn't know where it was themselves? This is a really a story of, of good coming out of bad. Um, I, was working, um, I was working for a company and I got made redundant. It's one of the best days of my life. I couldn't stand working for the boss. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, best day of my life. And I wanted to find this place called Shorncliffe and there was nothing online. And I, I live in Bromley, so in Bromley, Kent. So there is in Kent a place called Shorn and a place called Cliff, but nothing called Shorncliffe. And I looked everywhere and there was nothing on the internet at the time um, at all. And uh, for some reason, I put that one word into eBay. Why I would put it there and look for it, God only knows. And I did that and immediately up popped this map from 1801 showing Shorncliffe Camp. And on it was a sort of hand-drawn map. And on it was two roads, one pointing to Hythe, one pointing to Sandgate. So immediately I got on Google Earth, found those two towns, and then looked between them and then switched over from the map to satellite. And there was this little square of green somewhere. And then I could see an army camp and I thought, what the hell? So I literally contacted a guy, an amazing guy called uh, Michael George, who we must, must get on the podcast. Um, this is all Michael's fault. <laughs> this is why you're here, James and Steve. It's all because of him. And he wrote this book called Coastal Conflict. And um, he said to me, yeah, yeah, Sir John Moore's Redoubt is, is still here. Do you want to come and see it? So next day, I hopped in a car, drove straight down, and I was the first 95th Rifleman back on Shorncliffe Redoubt in about 200 years. And when we meet all our students and we meet all the visitors and guests who come to Shorncliffe, this is the thing, especially younger people who are so in love with their phones. This is the whole thing I tell them is, which is you have two options in life. You can take a photograph and walk away, or you can take a photograph and decide to do something. And I just saw the magic in the place. And I just thought there's huge potential here to tell an amazing story. And so literally started, wanted, started up a campaign to try and, save it and so on and when i took the army they knew nothing about it that's why there's a telephone a, a mobile phone mast in the middle of the birthplace of the modern british army at shorncliffe that's why they put a phone mast in the middle of it what comes across straight away is obviously chris is has got a an infectious sort of enthusiasm about him um and for me my, my story of coming to shorncliffe is, is slightly different um Yes, I, I, I stand alongside Chris in the green uniform and I for rifles, but, uh, which depicts, to, as we know, the, the riflemen of the Napoleonic period. But my connection to Shorncliffe also is via, and Chris will know this, my, my great uncle, um, who was uh, rifleman Frederick George Jones of the 12th Seventh Battalion Rifle Brigade. And he was uh, one of Kitchener's volunteers in uh, 1914. He signed up for the Rifle Brigade and, uh, as the war, outbreak of war and uh, uh, joined the, the, uh, the regiment and did all his training down in the Kent area. Now, I don't know for certain if he actually went through Shorncliffe, but uh, he was certainly down at the Isle of Sheppey and that way. Um, but uh, he may well have gone through Folkestone, gone through Shorncliffe on his way out. But his heritage of his regiment is at Shorncliffe. And why does... Fred means so much to me. Well, as a kid, I was always told about this, this uh, uncle, my mum's uncle had gone off to war and fought in this war overseas and never came back and how much it had hurt my man and all this sort of thing. And didn't know anything about it, but it fired my enthusiasm. And 
and I, I, I wanted to know more about him. And I thought a way of finding out more about him would be find about his regiment. So I came through Shorncliffe uh, via the First World War and my great uncle. Now, for me, every time I go out on a, a field or an event, and as Chris knows, I do wear the uniform mm-hmm. of a rifleman of the First World War as well, and particularly the 20th Service Battalion, the 12th Service Battalion and 20th Light Division. And uh, I talk about my great uncle. When I, when I go on tours, I talk about my great uncle. He comes with me. He's part of me. He's part of the reason why I do this. And so it would be part of Sean Cliff is to also to tell his story and keep his memory alive and to tell the history of his regiment. And I think it's the best way to do it, to be part of a project like this. I mean, I love that story. And it's exactly what we're about. And James, I mean, you're the new boy. Um, for people who don't know, at Shawncliffe, we have over 600 uh, men and one woman buried there um, from the summer Victorian period up to the present day. It's an active military cemetery right next to St. John Moore's Redoubt. 300 Canadians, Australians, one Portuguese, uh, you know, Chinese, everybody's there. Real representation. Um, but James, obviously you're from a little place called... Australia. <laughs> yes, I'm the, uh, I'm the group's token Australian. Um, and I guess my, my introduction um, to the group is via, in fact, uh, that very cemetery. And I guess if we, if we cast our, our years back, you know, growing up in Australia as a child, you're always taught about that Anzac legend, that moment where the Australian soldiers, you know, they stormed ashore at Gallipoli and they had their baptism of fire. And that's something that you learn about in school. And that Anzac legend is something that continues even to this day um, in Australian schools. And it's something that, 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 that really, I guess, lit a flame inside of me as well. And then when I was in my, my early teens, my mum shared with me some information about a, a great uncle who also uh, fought in the Great War, sadly died. Um, but not much was known about him. You know, during the ensuing years, there'd been a, there'd been a fire and um, you know, a lot of records were lost and no one really knew where he was and nobody really knew his story. But, you know, good old Uncle Gordon, I kind of held on to him for many, many years. And then I had an opportunity to visit Gallipoli, which was just breathtaking and just the most awe-inspiring place you can, you can ever be. And I remember wading out uh, in, in my shorts and my flip-flops, uh, wading out uh, into Anzac Cove and, and just standing there looking up at places like the Sphinx and, and all the hills and thinking, how could they do this? You know, I, I'm here in a pair of flip-flops and a pair of shorts and a T-shirt and I'm struggling to get back in. I mean, here were guys who were landing, you know, really invading and they were there getting shot at. They're in a uniform that's made out of wool. Uh, they're carrying rations and ammunition and a rifle and you know, I, I couldn't even just, just fathom it. And then to go in, in inland and see these places where they fought, you know, it's some of the most inhospitable country you can, you can imagine. Um, so, so that was, that was, that was pretty amazing. And then, um, uh, had the spark one day to research my, my dear old uncle Gordon and literally just had his name and a part of a service number and through some, some dogged research was able to, to locate him and find out um, where he was and, where he fought, um, still unable to find a picture of him, but the search continues, um, and found out that he had died um, in the Battle of uh, Hamel uh, on the uh, on the eighth of August in nineteen eighteen. He was he was with his artillery uh, battery when a when a shell came over and, and very tragically took them all out together. 
And I, and I guess not the nice part of this, because obviously war is tragic, but the nice part of it is, is that he and his three companions are all buried together in a communal, communal cemetery. And so when I moved down to uh, Folkestone, and this is the short version, by the way, when I moved down <laughs> to Folkestone, I was, um, I was quite overjoyed to see that there was a, a CWGC cemetery. And of course, I didn't know anything about the trusts at this stage. And so I popped down and then I happened to see that, you know, there was the odd headstone with the Australian sun and that AIF badge. And I thought, oh, hello. And then as it turns out, there's 11 Australians buried at Shorncliffe. There are three New Zealanders, as you say, countless Canadians. There's Portuguese, there's Chinese, there's Belgian, there's South African. You know, it really is a great community of soldiers, men and women, who are resting there. And that was when I reached out. I, 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 I hunted Facebook and thought there must be something that I can do to, to help continue to tell these, these stories. And everyone that's buried there has a story. And, and those are the stories that I'm looking forward to telling over the ensuing days, weeks, months, and years, hopefully. This is, this is I, you know, I had no idea what I was doing, what I, what I started. I just really thought I found a place everybody would like to come and see it and we tell some stories about it. But it was only when someone said, oh yeah, you know, by the way, there's a Martello tower there and that tells a story. And then right outside the Martello tower, tower nine is a spigot mortar. And I'm thinking, wow, but hang on, that does the same job World War II. And then we started doing events and then you meet people and they go, by the way, you haven't even talked about first world war. And then, what? And I knew nothing about First World, and this is why I love it when talking to you guys about it. Mm -hmm. um, I'll be honest, you know, like all amateur historians, there's some periods I love, and there's some periods, you know, just I, I, I just can't fathom. One of them is what? No, one of them was the First World War, and obviously I had two grandfathers who went through it. And the, but the end thing, it was the stories. There's a big. 200 year separation between the 95th. All we have are the stories that they wrote down themselves um, back then. But there's so many more. The stories were, became more and more live the closer we got, and especially 100 years ago. And obviously, now we're looking at World War II and Korea and Falklands, etc. It was meeting the people. I hadn't realized what I'd started. I really didn't. And I, I think, we, as Chris, you're quite right because, um, as you say, when we do events, it's it's amazing who the people will come up to us and tell us about voluntary about their, their stories of Shawncliffe. And it could be the, 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 the receptionist, it could be the milkman, it could be deliver the stuff to the site, it could be anything. Um, it could be, you know, and they think, well, I, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm not part of Shawncliffe. Well, well, actually you are. And a gobsmack when we want to find out about their stories because they are part of the history. It's not just the military side of it. It's the entire, community side of it as well that we want to tell um and yeah. everybody who's come into contact with that camp and that area has an important story a piece of the story to tell that's part of the sean cliff history and and you know steve and, and you know there's there's local families who have sons buried there and having met them that really affected me mm. um really affected me and it was an honor to have them at our first major event um, for, well, we'll uh, to commemorate World War One, Light at the Darkest Hour, the first one, to have them there as our guest of to light the last lantern. That really affected me. I mean, 
you read it, you know, I'm just a citizen of this country and you read it, read about conflict in either history books or in the papers and it, there's always that separation. But when you meet families who've been through it and I'm, I'm, I'm a civvy, I'm not, I'm not military at all. Then it's, you know, they, they make the ultra sacrifice. And I've, I feel if that's just one son that's there, well, we've got 600. So somebody better fight for them and somebody better stand up for them and their families and tell a story. And that's, that's what came out of it. And that's what I found. And then it's just, it just spins out. Mm. I can't tell you how many times we always say fate and destiny rules what we do at Shuncliffe. And it's every time, you know, it's not, hasn't been easy over these years doing it. You know, it's everybody's want to see us fail. Everybody wants to see us stop and walk away. And every time you think about it, it, something happens and makes just pulls you back in I think <laughs> it's like that famous quote out the sopranos <laughs> every time you think about getting out it pulls you back in um, i think every event, like event we do, every event we do we we get motivated by let's uh, say the people we meet if you think um oh, yeah. we've done tremendous events we've done the big stuff like uh waterloo bicentennial we've done yeah. the first world war commemorations like the vimy commemoration which is outstanding uh, we've done the uh, even the small stuff like the the, the, the history fairs and uh, yeah. family history fairs where we we still meet. We could be miles away from Shawncliffe, it would still meet people who've got a connection to Shawncliffe and would come up and say, "Oh yeah, my 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 uncle was there, or my dad was there, or or whatever." Um, I, yeah. I mean, it's crazy when dear and and James, well, this is almost like a warning <laughs> that that you it will it will. It will literally grab you at a moment when you least expect it. You, we, you weren't there, Steve, for our first ever um, Sir John Moore commemoration, were you? Uh, no, I wasn't. No. Okay, so we started in 2009 to, as 95th Roman, commemorate the death of Sir John Moore and the heroic uh, Battle of Karana and the march back by the men. Um, that's a whole nother story. That's going to be our podcast in January. Because um, we have got a special guest who one is related to somebody who did the original march, and then did the 200th anniversary march. An amazing guy. He's also one of our trustees for the trust. Um, the first time we did it went like a dream. Went back to the pub, <laughs> which we do, and there was a guy in the pub sitting there and wanted to know we had guys in uniform and everyone standing around chatting about it. And he was he said. Uh, What's all this about? I said, Sir John Moore, we've the first ever one we're doing. Blah, blah, blah. What's Sir John Moore work from Corona? I said, yeah. He said, I've got a relative in a cemetery up in Newcastle. And it says on his headstone, this is the man who held the lantern above Sir John Moore when they buried him. <laughs> it's just, wow. just a random drinker who came down to Sandgate on that day and decided to pop into that pub in that. And you just think, what you know we get, that all the time, we get it all the time it's just yeah it, it, it's 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 really spooky and um i think if the beauty of when we do our events is one they're accessible to everybody you can all be part of it there's no there's no rope saying you can't be you know you're not allowed you can just be a spectator and we love people being involved um and the second is you have moments that just change your it turns history alive and it's, it's, it's quite something. 
What was that mm -hmm. uh, quote uh, that or that conversation you had of, uh, when we were doing the First World War commemorations? You had a conversation with the CWC about um, the graves in uh, uh, in uh, in France and Flanders. Uh, oh yeah, you know that was from the. Uh, again, I had to start educating myself on First World War. I mean, thanks, you know, obviously meeting people like yourself and and the other First World War um, reenactors and historical interpreters that we meet. I thought, you know what, I need to learn a bit more of this, and I'm, I love every aspect of history. Um, and I went to the uh, Wellington Quarry in um, Arras. First time I've been to anything First World War. I ended up talking to the guy who ran the museum at the Wellington Quarry, which is amazing underground story. Um, we'll do a podcast on that, do that just on our ass, actually. Mm -hmm. And um, he said something that, that, again, shook me, and I call it my light bulb moment. He said, when I tell him the story of Shawncliffe about his place where young men were one, uh, they, they were trained and the trenches were there and they were learning it and then he's going to town and girls have ice creams on the beach and the, you know and he said chris you were so lucky he said we here in france and belgium we only have them when they're dead you had them when they were alive and it was like oh my god of course that's it we don't talk about them dying we talk about them as young men living we talk about them in the present and can I give you a illustration yeah. of that, Chris? Can I give, let's, let's bring in um, let's bring in one of our, the bit of research I do is uh, I'm quite often dabbling around with uh, First World War records and it's part of my thing. So having sort of found out about Fred, I continue to find out about other bits and pieces and it just goes on and on and on. But that's um, why I'm obsessed about it. But uh, recently I was uh, searching through, and this is connecting to the stories of the guys at Shawncliffe. And I was researching through uh, internet archives and that sort of thing. And I came across a guy called Lieutenant Armand Wells of the 8th Canadian Interest Infantry. Um, and I found the book that was published after mm. his death. And this book was a series of letters that he had sent to his mum and dad uh, back in Canada. And the majority of it are uh, his experiences at Shawncliffe. Uh, from roughly December 1915 to the 4th of August 1916, when he uh, is uh, finally shipped out to uh, to France. He fights in the Vimy campaign, um, and just after the the, the the events of the 9th of April, through those first few days up to the 14th of April, he is killed in a subsequent attack. But uh, his letters were published uh, after his death, and uh, I was reading through, and it talks about this... The guys, we often talk about the guys being um, just ordinary blokes. And we said, Chris, you mentioned about the ice creams and meeting the girls and so on. And he's talking about uh, one piece in his letter back to his mum on the 25th of February, 1916. It's been snowing like crazy. And he's meant to be doing a, uh, uh, a demonstration for observers, which there was no observers because they couldn't see a thing. The, the snow was too thick of uh, an attack on a, on a trench system or a doubt as he called it. So he has 50 men in his trench and they have 200 guys attacking the trench 
and he talks about the uh, the events relating to that uh, the blank firing and the firing of live bombs over the top obviously rocket grenades over the top of the heads of these guys and the effects and uh, how much fun it is and there's lots of bangs and flashes but he gets to the end and i'm going to read this direct quote and he gets to the end he says and then finally when our bombs were all used up the enemy made the final charge up to our redoubt and a maneuver was at an end supposedly the enemy paused after reaching our trenches to get their breath and during the pause someone threw a snowball the next minute something like 250 snowballs were flying through the air officers and men acting like schoolboys and for the next 15 minutes one of the greatest snowball fights ever occurred was raging and that to me illustrates the point that these are just guys want to have fun as well they're young blokes there's a different style. It's not all just serious training for a, a very serious thing they're going to do. It's about the ordinary guy. And I think that's the story that we tell or try to tell. And I think we do it pretty damn good as well. Well, this is it. And I love that because that follows on um, from obviously uh, what, what else we do, which is we started as a trust. We started got amazing people who work for us. And I know they don't work. No, they don't work for us. They, they they work to support us and uh, Sue and Vince and Viv and Steve, again, amazing. All the volunteers who come up and step up with us and support us, amazing. But obviously the latest book out by the Trust, 95th Rifles, they're in the low countries and they end up having a snowball fight with the villagers in, and this is 1814. And they say so many windows got broken that day and that the officers of the 95th said to villagers, oh, no, we'll pay, we'll pay, we're really sorry, we'll pay. The villagers said, no, it's hilarious, we'll, we'll pay for it. It's nice to know that tradition is, <laughs> it's good to be it was carried on through from people from 95th. It must be something we, we, yeah. we're but, good uh, about. He's a Canadian guy, but uh, he's still a young man. He's still having yeah. fun. I mean, poor guy was killed in action subsequently later, but uh, like so many, but uh, it's... To stumble across those those letters, and they're pretty available on the internet. You do go to Internet Archive, do a search for Armand Wells, and uh, you will find his book online to download and read. Uh, and it is just full of lovely little snippets of information about Sean Cliff during that period of the First World War, when guys are coming across from Canada and training on site and engagement with the local community in Sean Cliff, Sangay, and Folkestone. It's a fantastic little read. Fantastic little read. I mean, James, I've been to Australia and it's a, you know, it's a long flight out there, but coming over must have been something else. Again, oh, yeah. they, unlike the Canadians who were sort of, had only been in Canada, some of them only in Canada like a year or less. Um, mm -hmm. uh, when the Aussies came over to Europe, they were proper Aussies. Well, they were indeed. And, and you know, I, I think the thing to remember here is, as, as well is that the, the Australian army was all volunteers. You know, there was no regular army. There was no conscription. Uh, conscription. They were all volunteers. They all signed up for, for king and country and for the great, for the great adventure. Um, you know, the first great armada, if you will, of troops left the Australian shores from a very small town in the south of Western Australia called Albany. And on the 1st of November, 1914, over 40 ships sailed for what they thought was going to be Europe. But of course, that changed when they all started dropping off at, uh, at Gallipoli because obviously it, it changed and they had to uh, train up in, in, in Egypt 
before moving across to the Gallipoli Peninsula and then eventually were evacuated and um, moved uh, across to, to Europe. But yes, it's, it's one heck of a journey, you know, and, and coming by sea as well. You know, it's, it's not like it is, you know, you, you've mentioned it there, it's a long old flight, but can you imagine doing it in a troop carrier with, oh, you know, oh. 1,100 other blokes? You know, can you imagine the yeah. smell to start off with? <laughs> but also, yeah, I mean, you, can, you can imagine the fun as well um, that they would have got up to. You know, you know, some some of these, and they were boys. You know, let's let's not forget, some of them were just boys. I mean, half of them lied about their age. You know, most of them were sixteen and seventeen, pretending to be to be nineteen. I mean, I, I think the youngest Anzac on record is is thirteen, who turned fourteen whilst he was on the on the ship over. Um, you know, they were, they, were, they were literally going into the unknown. They had no idea. You know, you know, Australia is so far, so far away from, from Europe and, and the war and the crisis. And, and of course, a lot of the boys back then were reading these stories and reading this, this, this propaganda and thinking, yeah, this is a great adventure. I'm up for this. Go and see the world. No worries. But of course, they didn't realise that their journey could come to a very, very abrupt end. Yeah. Uh, and it would be all over. Well, could I presume that a high proportion of them were, were country boys? A lot of them were, yeah. I, I, and I mean, you can actually so go online. Boys. Yes, of course, and, and you can and you can go online and and you can research the Australian soldiers, you know, quite quite easily. Um, all of the World War One and most of the World War Two records um, were gifted to the Australian people by the Australian government. They've all been digitised, so you can you can do a vast amount of research all for free, which is incredible. And when you go through. And you read some of the stories and some of the files are quite detailed and they contain personal diaries, battalion diaries, exchanges between, uh, you know, families wanting to find out what happened to their loved ones, where they're buried, you know, what personal effects were returned and things like that. And some of them can be quite heartbreaking. Some of them can be, can be quite humorous. Again, I come back to my, my great uncle, you know, he was built up to be this, this hero by the family. And I, and I guess he was, but you know, you read his 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 file, and he was a bit of a he was a bit of a naughty lad as well. You know, he was he was he, he was quite often hauled before his superiors for, you know, the typical Australian thing of not saluting. You know, we weren't big for saluting back then, but he was he was hauled over the coals for that a couple of times. He was you know caught drunk a couple of times. He disappeared into into a French town a few times and visited the local establishment, if you know what I mean. None of times. this is surprising us, you know that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I lived in uh, Australia. None of this surprises me at all. But, you know, the, the, the stories that they tell, and, and some of them, you know, a vast majority of them, you know, their civilian life, if you will, they list their occupation as stockmen or... Yeah. Or, or roustabouts or, or something like that or horsemen or, or something but but then you know you, ha you have that that cr that great cross-section of society where you have doctors you have scientists you have uh, journalists you have uh, bootmakers, whatever you like and they're all signing up to do their bit for, for, for king and country because it was the right thing to do yeah i mean you've absolutely you know you guys have said exactly what we want to talk about in the podcast going forward, which are these amazing stories. Um, and, you know, I've got two grandfathers. One came from tiny uh, hill farm out by Upton Pond seven. The other one came from, from up North up sort of Chester, Manchester way, you know, one ended up getting blown up for even got to, got to the trenches and got ill whilst convalescing and managed to get out, which is great. The other one ended up, getting torpedoed twice in one day ending up in egypt marrying egyptian girl and never going home um 
you know this is what it's all about and is is the trust is really about is being a home for these stories and being a place where we can do things to show people especially in lockdown when we this year that the 600 plus boys that are there um their stories and their family stories won't be forgotten and that somebody cares and you know no one should go um just disappear off the face of this earth everyone has a reason everybody has a chance to to have their story told and they're all really a lot of them are quite inspirational a lot of them are, are all of them are very poignant and make you think it's also that if you look at our motto, and I, I don't know where I got this from, it just came to me, um, which is make history, save history. Um, and it reads both ways. You can save history, and by saving history, you actually make history, you write yourself into the next chapter. And it doesn't matter if it's with the Shortlift Trust, or if it's with your local heritage group, or it's with something, whatever. If you want to be in that next chapter, you just have to do something to be involved. Because the next chapter of Shawncliffe, when I was there, it was a dead story and was getting deader by the minute. And by me getting involved and having you guys involved and having the rest of the team involved and having people listen to this podcast and listen to uh, read our books and do all the other things, they are part of the next chapter of Shawncliffe. And our aim is to save the place and build ourselves a museum and a visitor centre there and open it up for the community and uh, bring jobs and do all those fantastic things. I know we can do it. It's hard. We're up against it. Just warning you now, James, we're up against it. Steve's, uh, yeah, you've got to be a battler. Well, that's okay because, because, because I, I think we all are. And, and, and like you say, getting involved is, is what we all need to do in some form or another. And if it's not with, with the Shawncliffe Trust, then, you know, I, I echo your words, you know, get involved in, in any way um, that you can. And, you know, maybe volunteering isn't your thing, but, you know, that's, that's, that's okay. You know, you can still support in, in other ways. You know, you can yeah. spread the word about us. You can follow us on, on social media. You know, we're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. You know, you can follow us that way and support our work. You can talk about us. You can tell us your stories. So, again, the people that were involved not only in Shawncliffe, but might also be buried in Shawncliffe, you know, their stories are, are important to us. And they should be important to everybody listening to this to this podcast as well. And over time, we're going to tell those stories. You know, as as Steve mentioned, it might be the the person who dropped off the milk. It could have been a nurse who who worked in the you know now very much long gone military hospital. It it could have been somebody who happened to be passing through when German planes flew overhead. Anything. We want to tell those stories, and you know we're hoping that this podcast will be you know entertaining. Um, you know, we, we hope it will be. This is our first one. We've still got our training wheels on. But, you know, over time, it's going to evolve. And we will tell these stories. And we'll tell them from, you know, in our homes, from the pub, on location. Uh, and we'll have special guests as well. Let's not forget, you know, we've, we've, we've got a wish list. And, and we've got a list of people that we're hoping that will come on uh, and further, further colour the picture uh, of Shawncliffe from the last 200 plus years. And, which is fantastic and I've, I've already spoken to a lot of people and I've gone back it's been really a thing that's come out from this lockdown time I've had off because we're all in busy lives and we all understand that it's actually I, I've got my little home office library at home and filing cabinet and I'm meaning to file this pile of paper next to me 
And I kid you not, it was probably about two meters by one meter high of paper <laughs> and stuff. And I went through it in lockdown and boy, have we done a lot of stuff. And the people we've met, amazing people. I'm, I'm going to reach out to everybody we've spoken to and been involved in our project in the past and get them on because we've had, you know, amazing military people, amazing community people. Um, obviously, I was lucky to be invited to do projects around the world to get them involved. So they understand that heritage and community um, is, is not um, a dead subject or it's boring. You know, obviously, I, I can't wait to get the guys from Jordan. You know, I did this, got invited to do this project at Modi Rum, Lawrence of Arabia, um, and then at Petra, and then an amazing Showback Castle. So that was Crusaders and Nabataeans and Romans, and then the greatest, the biggest Oscar winning First World War story, which is uh, Lawrence of Arabia in the desert, in Wadi Rum, with, with where Lawrence was, where Lean shot the movie, and with Bedouins whose grandfathers rode with Lawrence, and then fathers were in, <laughs> in the movie. Amazing absolutely amazing so it's a great great stories you said also humor a lot of humor in the military it, it is some it, you know the 95th were renowned for it <laughs> yeah. we, we take it seriously but we also yeah we, we to a certain extent uh, we like to have a damn good laugh while doing it um <laughs> it's it's <laughs> Yeah, I can think of a few. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we can also uh, have an off-air sense of someone. But, you know, this is half the thing about it. Okay, well, let's talk about military. Who are your military heroes? Over to you, James. Who are your military heroes Ooh. from when you were a kid? From when I was a kid? Um, see, for me, my take is going to be um, completely different. But I would say Monash, for me. Uh, the Australian, Australian general, Monash. Um, was certainly the, the man who I who who I learned the most about in school. Um, a great tactician, a great general. You know, highly thought of, highly spoken about, um, and listened to as well. You know, he was listened to by um, his his counterparts in the English army, which you know back then in the First World War he, sh he shouldn't have been because right up until that point, you know, we were just considered to be the doers. You know, if there was something that needed to be done, just shove the Australians in there. Uh, and they'll get it done. Um, but of course, we had great leaders. And he was one of them. So, so for me, um, brilliant. And, and there's a fantastic book by, by an author called Peter Fitzsimmons, all about Monash. And I thoroughly recommend it to anyone. I've heard of that. I've heard. Yeah. Steve? Yeah, for, uh, I'm going to be boring. I have to say, for me, my military hero, for obvious, number one is um, my great uncle. Um, but expanding upon that, it's probably the the other ranks, the guys who served in that uh, that British expeditionary force. And so that includes the Canadians, the Australians, the New Zealanders, the South Africans, the Indians, the uh, Chinese Labour Corps. It, it's it's a the story for me is about those guys who don't have books generally written about them, who don't have their lives shared in a great detail. They're the ordinary guys who did the work and did an extraordinary job under extremely difficult conditions um, from 1914 through to 1918. Um, and it's, for me, it's important to tell their story, no matter how small, minor it may seem to 
to the person who's trying to say it to me or tell it to me, uh, to keep their memories alive and to just share their experiences as honestly and as truthfully as we can. And for me, that's one of the biggest things with the First World War. There's so many myths and so many falsehoods that are told about it and downright lies. It's not all mud, blood and poetry. Um, there's a damn sight more to it than, uh, than uh, is generally accepted by the likes of, say, you know, you know, your BBCs or people like that. I have three. Um, the first one is, is why I got into military history. I was right when I was, uh, when I was at school, I went to boarding school and it was time of airfix little models. And I had a headmaster who, who literally gave us this massive room with a lino floor and we could, we could build uh, the biggest battlefields ever. And we were all into Napoleonic soldiers. And so I had a teacher told me about Wellington and he was my first because he, he was very good. He told it sort of warts and all about it. Um, the second is because I used to go around his house a lot and I used to fish in his private lakes. Um, and, um, and that's Winston Churchill because mm. he's not perfect, but he was the perfect man for the job. And the more I hear of his imperfections, the better. I used to know <laughs> a little known fact, Churchill's gardener was a German, ex-German POW called Albert, who ended up after he left Chart while I came to work for my, uh, for my folks. And I got to talk to him all about Churchill, who he used to build walls with and do the gardening with him and Churchill. Our greatest World War II leader, his best mate in the garden was an ex-German B.O.W. who always wore his Wellington boots in any weather and had this, you know, smelliest feet ever. This is Albert, not Churchill. Um, so Churchill's the other one. But I think one of my ultimate heroes is um, juxtaposition to all of those two, which is Spike, Spike Milligan. His book's about his life in the army I love Spike Milligan. He was a quintessential British soldier. Sense of humour, sense of ridiculous, the, the dedication to doing the job and immediately lapsed into stupidness and chaos. Um, you can read some of the greatest books about military history ever. Read Milligan's books about his life in the army. Just mental. I recommend... And I tend to read it every Christmas, the story about them being deloused just before Christmas in a cow shed in the battlefield with um, them naked, <laughs> except their army boots and a small tin with a cotton wool, a pad of cotton wool. And in the tin was a liquid and they were told to dab it and all there, wherever the lice were, which was obviously under there their armpits and around their groin and so on. And they dabbed this liquid onto themselves. And then they realized within three seconds, it was neat petrol. <laughs> 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 and it's just a story of him, the way he tells that. And then all the other stories in his books, which is, you know, juxtaposed him being through some of the worst campaigns and Monte Casino and all those sorts of things. Also about him having shell shock and how he dealt with that which again is a, in a hilarious way. Do you know, I, I think, think it's reflected in his humour as well. You can see the sort of elements of PTSD, which is another subject, obviously, we want to talk yeah, about as well on a yeah. podcast, coming across in his humour. Um, 
I think that's uh, that could be evident in the in the, the way he comes across. With you. And to a certain extent, I suppose you could lump into that uh, Peter Sellers and uh, also uh, more so perhaps uh, Harry Seacombe. Well, he, they almost killed Harry Seacombe. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've read that. So, yeah, that's sort of yeah, yeah, it was good. They, yeah. they, they, they fired this gun and it rolled off. The, it came off the top of this cliff and landed below and it just missed <laughs> Seacombe who was in the tent. And uh, Spike always regrets that he never, <laughs> that he never, he never managed to steer the t- steer the gun in the right direction there so um <laughs> then this is it so that you you hear these stories and it's an absolute joy absolute honor to hear people's stories so this is who we are james steve thank you for agreeing to do this <laughs> pleasure fun absolute fun james you're the james james is, is the brains behind this he's the one who's he's going to put it together um we've got it all together now uh, the story behind that as you know i'm going to leave it to the next podcast we're going to do something special for christmas for sean cliff for the 95th for world war one for the projects we've been involved with and for all the guys and girls who are out there serving um we're going to tell a little christmas story we're going to tell probably a couple of christmas stories um which would be quite nice so that's the plan you know again Thank you, everybody, for listening to our first one. I hope you carry on listening to us. Um, please support us anyway. We've got some books out. Books out. We've got our latest book out, um, which is out on eBay. And, uh, yeah, that's really for me. So, uh, again, from myself, Chris Shaw, thank you very much for listening. And from myself, Steve Head, uh, cheerio to the next one. And from me, James O'Brien, Struth. <laughs> I had to end it like a typical Australian, but truth, we finally got through it. But no, it's a, yeah, it's a real pleasure. And looking forward to the next instant. See you later, guys. In no man's land, together.